Section 21 of The World as Will and Idea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 1, by Arthur Schopenhauer. Translated by R. B. Haldane and J. Kemp. The Third Book the world as idea second aspect history follows the thread of events it is pragmatic so far as it deduces them in accordance with the law of motivation a law that determines the self-manifesting will wherever it is enlightened by knowledge at the lowest grades of its objectivity where it still acts without knowledge natural science in the form of etiology treats of the laws of the changes of its phenomena and in the form of morphology of what is permanent in them this almost endless task is lightened by the aid of concepts which comprehend what is general in order that we may deduce what is particular from it lastly mathematics treats of the mere forms time and space in which the ideas broken up into multiplicity appear for the knowledge of the subject as individual all these of which the common name is science proceed according to the principle of sufficient reason in its different forms and their theme is always the phenomenon its laws connections and the relations which result from them but what kind of knowledge is concerned with that which is outside and independent of all relations that which alone is really essential to the world the true content of its phenomena that which is subject to no change and therefore is known with equal truth for all time in a word the ideas which are the direct and adequate objectivity of the thing in itself the will we answer art the work of genius it repeats or reproduces the eternal ideas grasped through pure contemplation the essential and abiding in all the phenomena of the world and according to what the material is in which it reproduces it is sculpture or painting poetry or music its one source is the knowledge of ideas its one aim the communication of this knowledge while science following the unresting and inconstant stream of the fourfold forms of reason and consequent with each end attained sees further and can never reach a final goal nor attain full satisfaction any more than by running we can reach the place where the clouds touch the horizon art on the contrary is everywhere at its goal for it plucks the object of its contemplation out of the stream of the world's course and has it isolated before it and this particular thing which in that stream was a small perishing part becomes to art the representative of the whole an equivalent of the endless multitude in space and time it therefore pauses at this particular thing the course of time stops the relations vanish for it only the essential the idea is its object we may therefore accurately define it as the way of viewing things independent of the principle of sufficient reason 
in opposition to the way of viewing them which proceeds in accordance with that principle and which is the method of experience and of science this last method of considering things may be compared to a line infinitely extended in a horizontal direction and the former to a vertical line which cuts it at any point the method of viewing things which proceeds in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason is a rational method and it alone is valid and of use in practical life and in science the method which looks away from the content of this principle is the method of genius which is only valid and of use in art the first is the method of aristotle the second is on the whole that of plato the first is like the mighty storm that rushes along without beginning and without aim bending agitating and carrying away everything before it the second is like the silent sunbeam that pierces through the storm quite unaffected by it the first is like the innumerable showering drops of the waterfall which constantly changing never rest for an instant the second is like the rainbow quietly resting on this raging torrent only through the pure contemplation described above which ends entirely in the object can ideas be comprehended and the nature of genius consists in preeminent capacity for such contemplation now as this requires that a man should entirely forget himself and the relations in which he stands genius is simply the completest objectivity that is the objective tendency of the mind as opposed to the subjective which is directed to one's own self in other words to the will thus genius is a faculty of continuing in the state of pure perception of losing oneself in perception and of enlisting in this service the knowledge which originally existed only for the service of the will that is to say genius is the power of leaving one's own interests wishes and aims entirely out of sight thus of entirely renouncing one's own personality for a time so as to remain pure knowing subject clear vision of the world and this is not merely at moments but for a sufficient length of time and with sufficient consciousness to enable one to reproduce by deliberate art what has thus been apprehended and to fix in lasting thoughts the wavering images that float before the mind it is as if when genius appears in any individual a far larger measure of the power of knowledge falls to his lot than is necessary for the service of an individual will and this superfluity of knowledge being free now becomes subject purified from will a clear mirror of the inner nature of the world this explains the activity amounting even to disquietude of men of genius for the present can seldom satisfy them because it does not fill their consciousness this gives them that restless aspiration that unceasing desire for new things and for the contemplation of lofty things and also that longing that is hardly ever satisfied for men of similar nature and of like stature to whom they might communicate themselves whilst the common mortal 
entirely filled and satisfied by the common present ends in it and finding everywhere his like enjoys that particular satisfaction in daily life that is denied to genius imagination has rightly been recognized as an essential element of genius it has sometimes even been regarded as identical with it but this is a mistake as the objects of genius are the eternal ideas the permanent essential forms of the world and all its phenomena and as the knowledge of the idea is necessarily knowledge through perception is not abstract the knowledge of the genius would be limited to the ideas of the objects actually present to his person and dependent upon the chain of circumstances that brought these objects to him if his imagination did not extend his horizon far beyond the limits of his actual personal existence and thus enable him to construct the whole out of the little that comes into his own actual into his own actual apperception and so to let almost all possible scenes of life pass before him in his own consciousness further the actual objects are almost always very imperfect copies of the ideas expressed in them therefore the man of genius requires imagination in order to see in things not that which nature has actually made but that which she endeavoured to make yet could not because of that conflict of her forms among themselves which we referred to in the last book we shall return to this farther on in treating of sculpture the imagination that extends the intellectual horizon of the man of genius beyond the objects which actually present themselves to him both as regards quality and quantity therefore extraordinary strength of imagination accompanies and is indeed a necessary condition of genius but the converse does not hold for strength of imagination does not indicate genius on the contrary men who have no touch of genius may have much imagination for as it is possible to consider a real object in two opposite ways purely objectively the way of genius grasping its idea or in the common way merely in the relations in which it stands to other objects and to one's own will in accordance with the principle of sufficient reason it is also possible to perceive an imaginary object in both of these ways regarded in the first way it is a means to the knowledge of the idea the communication of which is the work of art in the second case the imaginary object is used to build castles in the air congenial to egotism and the individual humour and which for the moment delude and gratify thus only the relations of the fantasies so linked together are known the man who indulges in such an amusement is a dreamer he will easily mingle those fancies that delight his solitude with reality and so unfit himself for real life perhaps he will write them down and then we shall have the ordinary novel of every description which entertains those who are like him and the public at large for the readers imagine themselves in the place of the hero and then find the story very agreeable the common mortal the manufacture of nature which she produces by the thousand every day is as we have said not capable at least not continuously so 
of observation that in every sense is wholly disinterested as sensuous contemplation strictly so-called is he can turn his attention to things only so far as they have some relation to his will however indirect it may be since in this respect which never demands anything but the knowledge of relations the abstract conception of the thing is sufficient and for the most part even better adapted for use the ordinary man does not linger long over the mere perception does not fix his attention long on one object but in all that is presented to him hastily seeks merely the concept under which it is to be brought as the lazy man seeks a chair and then it interests him no further this is why he is so soon done with everything with works of art objects of natural beauty and indeed everywhere with the truly significant contemplation of all the scenes of life he does not linger only seeks to know his own way in life together with all that might at any time become his way thus he makes topographical notes in the widest sense over the consideration of life itself as such he wastes no time the man of genius on the other hand whose excessive power of knowledge frees it at times from the service of will dwells in the consideration of life itself strives to comprehend the idea of each thing not its relations to other things and in doing this he often forgets to consider his own path in life and therefore for the most part pursues it awkwardly enough while to the ordinary man his faculty of knowledge is a lamp to lighten his path to the man of genius it is the sun which reveals the world this great diversity in their way of looking at life soon becomes visible in the outward appearance both of the man of genius and of the ordinary mortal the man in whom genius lives and works is easily distinguished by his glance which is both keen and steady and bears the stamp of perception of contemplation this is easily seen from the likenesses of the few men of genius whom nature has produced here and there among countless millions on the other hand in the case of an ordinary man the true object of his contemplation what he is prying into can be easily seen from his glance if indeed it is not quite stupid and vacant as is generally the case therefore the expression of genius in a face consists in this that in it a decided predominance of knowledge over will is visible and consequently there also shows itself in it a knowledge that is entirely devoid of relation to will that is pure knowing on the contrary in ordinary countenances there is a predominant expression of will and we see that knowledge only comes into activity under the impulse of will and thus is directed merely by motives since the knowledge that pertains to genius or the knowledge of ideas is that knowledge which does not follow the principle of sufficient reason so on the other hand the knowledge which does follow that principle is that which gives us prudence and rationality in life and which creates the sciences thus men of genius are affected with the deficiencies entailed in the neglect of this latter kind of knowledge yet what i say in this regard is subject to the limitations that it only concerns them in so far as and while they are actually engaged in that kind of knowledge which is peculiar to genius 
and this is by no means at every moment of their lives for the great though spontaneous exertion which is demanded for the comprehension of ideas free from will must necessarily relax and there are long intervals during which men of genius are placed in very much the same position as ordinary mortals both as regards advantages and deficiencies on this account the action of genius has always been regarded as an inspiration as indeed the name indicates as the action of a superhuman being distinct from the individual himself and which takes possession of him only periodically the disinclination of men of genius to direct their attention to the content of the principle of sufficient reason will first show itself with regard to the ground of being as dislike of mathematics for its procedure is based upon the most universal forms of the phenomenon space and time which are themselves merely modes of the principle of sufficient reason and is consequently precisely the opposite of that method of thought which seeks merely the content of the phenomenon the idea which expresses itself in it apart from all relations the logical method of mathematics is also antagonistic to genius for it does not satisfy but obstructs true insight and presents merely a chain of conclusions in accordance with the principle of the ground of knowing the mental faculty upon which it makes the greatest claim is memory for it is necessary to recollect all of the earlier propositions which are referred to experience has also proved that men of great artistic genius have no faculty for mathematics no man was ever very distinguished for both alfieri relates that he was never able to understand the fourth proposition of euclid goethe was constantly reproached with his want of mathematical knowledge by the ignorant opponents of his theory of colors here certainly where it was not a question of calculation and measurement upon hypothetical data but of direct knowledge by the understanding of causes and effects this reproach was so utterly absurd and inappropriate that by making it they have exposed their entire want of judgment just as much as by the rest of their ridiculous arguments the fact that up to the present day nearly half a century after the appearance of goethe's theory of colors even in germany the newtonian fallacies still have undisturbed possession of the professorial chair and men continue to speak quite seriously of the seven homogeneous rays of light and their different refrangibility will some day be numbered among the great intellectual peculiarities of men generally and especially of germans from the same cause as we have referred to above may be explained the equally well-known fact that conversely admirable mathematicians have very little susceptibility for works of fine art this is very naively expressed in the well-known anecdote of the french mathematician who having read racine's iphigenia shrugged his shoulders and asked qu'est-ce que cela prouve further as quick comprehension of relations in accordance with the laws of causality and motivation is what specially constitutes prudence or sagacity a prudent man so far as and while he is so will not be a genius and a man of genius so far as and while he is so will not be a prudent man lastly perceptive knowledge generally in the province of which the idea always lies is directly opposed to rational or abstract knowledge 
which is guided by the principle of the ground of knowing it is also well known that we seldom find great genius united with preeminent reasonableness on the contrary persons of genius are often subject to violent emotions and irrational passions but the ground of this is not weakness of reason but partly unwonted energy of that whole phenomenon of will the man of genius which expresses itself through the violence of all his acts of will and partly preponderance of the knowledge of perception through the senses and understanding over abstract knowledge producing a decided tendency to the perceptible the exceedingly lively impressions of which so far outshine colorless concepts that they take their place in the guidance of action which consequently becomes irrational accordingly the impression of the present moment is very strong with such persons and carries them away into unconsidered action violent emotions and passions moreover since in general the knowledge of persons of genius has to some extent freed itself from the service of will they will not in conversation think so much of the person they are addressing as of the thing they are speaking about which is vividly present to them and therefore they are likely to judge or narrate things too objectively for their own interests they will not pass over in silence what would more prudently be concealed and so forth finally they are given to soliloquizing and in general may exhibit certain weaknesses which are actually akin to madness it has often been remarked that there is a side at which genius and madness touch and even pass over into each other and indeed poetical inspiration has been called a kind of madness amabilis insania horace called it and wyland in the introduction to oberon speaks of it as an amiable madness even aristotle as quoted by seneca is reported to have said nullum magnum ingenium sina mixtura dementiae fuit plato expresses it in the figure of the dark cave referred to above when he says those who outside the cave have seen the true sunlight and the things that have true being that is ideas cannot afterwards see properly down in the cave because their eyes are not accustomed to the darkness they cannot distinguish the shadows and are jeered at for their mistakes by those who have never left the cave and its shadows in the phaedrus also he distinctly says that there can be no true poet without a certain madness in fact that every one appears mad who recognizes the eternal ideas in fleeting things cicero also quotes negat enim sine furore democritus quemquam poetam magnum esse posse quod idem dicit plato and lastly pope says great wits to madness sure are near allied and thin partitions do their bounds divide especially instructive in this respect is goethe's torquanto tasso in which he shows us not only the suffering the martyrdom of genius as such but also how it constantly passes into madness finally the fact of the direct connection of genius and madness is established by the biographies of great men of genius such as rousseau byron and alfieri and by anecdotes from the lives of others on the other hand i must mention that by a diligent search in lunatic asylums i have found individual cases of patients 
who are unquestionably endowed with great talents and whose genius distinctly appeared through their madness which however had completely gained the upper hand now this cannot be ascribed to chance for on the one hand the number of mad persons is relatively very small and on the other hand a person of genius is a phenomenon which is rare beyond all ordinary estimation and only appears in nature as the greatest exception it will be sufficient to convince us of this if we compare the number of really great men of genius that the whole of civilized europe has produced both in ancient and modern times with the two hundred and fifty millions who are always living in europe and who change entirely every thirty years in estimating the number of men of outstanding genius we must of course only count those who have produced work which have retained through all time an enduring value for mankind i shall not refrain from mentioning that i have known some persons of decided though not remarkable mental superiority who also showed a slight trace of insanity it might seem from this that every advance of intellect beyond the ordinary measure as an abnormal development disposes to madness in the meantime however i will explain as briefly as possible my view of the purely intellectual ground of the relation between genius and madness for this will certainly assist the explanation of the real nature of genius that is to say of that mental endowment which alone can produce genuine works of art but this necessitates a brief explanation of madness itself a clear and complete insight into the nature of madness a correct and distinct conception of what constitutes the difference between the sane and the insane has as far as i know not as yet been found neither reason nor understanding can be denied to madmen for they talk and understand and often draw very accurate conclusions they also as a rule perceive what is present quite correctly and apprehend the connection between cause and effect visions like the fantasies of delirium are no ordinary symptom of madness delirium falsifies perception madness the thoughts for the most part madmen do not err in the knowledge of what is immediately present their raving always relates to what is absent and past and only through these to their connection with what is present therefore it seems to me that their malady specially concerns the memory not indeed that memory fails them entirely for many of them know a great deal by heart and sometimes recognize persons whom they have not seen for a long time but rather that the thread of memory is broken the continuity of its connection destroyed and no uniformly connected recollection of the past is possible particular scenes of the past are known correctly just like the particular present but there are gaps in their recollection which they fill up with fictions and these are either always the same in which case they become fixed ideas and the madness that results is called monomania or melancholy or they are always different momentary fancies and then it is called folly tatuitas this is why it is so difficult to find out their former life from lunatics when they enter an asylum the true and the false are always mixed up in their memory 
although the immediate present is correctly known it becomes falsified through its fictitious connection with an imaginary past they therefore regard themselves and others as identical with persons who exist only in their imaginary past they do not recognize some of their acquaintances at all and thus while they perceive correctly what is actually present they have only false conceptions of its relations to what is absent if the madness reaches a high degree there is complete absence of memory so that the madman is quite incapable of any reference to what is absent or past and is only determined by the caprice of the moment in connection with the fictions which in his mind fill the past in such a case we are never for a moment safe from violence or murder unless we constantly make the madman aware of the presence of superior force the knowledge of the madman has this in common with that of the brute both are confined to the present what distinguishes them is that the brute has really no idea of the past as such though the past acts upon it through the medium of custom so that for example the dog recognizes its former master even after years that is to say it receives the wonted impression at the sight of him but of the time that has passed since it saw him it has no recollection the madman on the other hand always carries about in his reason an abstract past but it is a false past which exists only for him and that either constantly or only for the moment the influence of this false past prevents the use of the true knowledge of the present which the brute is able to make the fact that violent mental suffering or unexpected and terrible calamities should often produce madness i explain in the following manner all such suffering is as an actual event confined to the present it is thus merely transitory and is consequently never excessively heavy it only becomes unendurably great when it is lasting pain but as such it exists only in thought and therefore lies in the memory if now such a sorrow such painful knowledge or reflection is so bitter that it becomes altogether unbearable and the individual is prostrated under it then terrified nature seizes upon madness as the last resource of life the mind so fearfully tortured at once destroys the thread of its memory fills up the gaps with fictions and thus seeks refuge in madness from the mental suffering that exceeds its strength just as we cut off a mortified limb and replace it with a wooden one the distracted ajax king lear and ophelia may be taken as examples for the creations of true genius to which alone we can refer here as universally known are equal in truth to real persons besides in this case frequent actual experience shows the same thing a faint analogy of this kind of transition from pain to madness is to be found in the way in which all of us often seek as it were mechanically to drive away a painful thought that suddenly occurs to us by some loud exclamation or quick movement to turn ourselves from it to distract our minds by force we see from what has been said that the madman has a true knowledge of what is actually present and also of certain particulars of the past 
but that he mistakes the connection the relations and therefore falls into error and talks nonsense now this is exactly the point at which he comes into contact with the man of genius for he also leaves out of sight the knowledge of the connection of things since he neglects that knowledge of relations which conforms to the principle of sufficient reason in order to see in things only their ideas and to seek to comprehend their true nature which manifests itself to perception and in regard to which one thing represents its whole species in which way as goethe says one case is valid for a thousand the particular object of his contemplation or the present which is perceived by him with extraordinary vividness appear in so strong a light that the other links of the chain to which they belong are at once thrown into the shade and this gives rise to phenomena which have long been recognized as resembling those of madness that which in particular given things exists only incompletely and weakened by modifications is raised by the man of genius through his way of contemplating it to the idea of the thing to completeness he therefore sees everywhere extremes and therefore his own action tends to extremes he cannot hit the mean he lacks soberness and the result is what we have said he knows the ideas completely but not the individuals therefore it has been said that a poet may know mankind deeply and thoroughly and may yet have a very imperfect knowledge of men he is easily deceived and is a tool in the hands of the crafty end of section twenty one read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama